Kirsten Michelle Sills. And I'm the Bull Bay. And we are your hosts for this podcast, so they tell us. <laughs> yeah, this show is So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. And we are finally at the end of this season, which has been on the science of music, and we're going out with a bang. Yeah, that's right, because today we are looking at the science of rhythm. That's right. And first, we're going to be joined by neuroscientist Dr. Daniel Cameron. He's going to share his work where he's been searching to discover the hows and whys behind music and why it makes us move. Yeah. And then we'll be sitting down with Dr. Jayatri Das, chief bioscientist at the Franklin Institute, to learn how our bodies respond to dancing. And to close out the season, we're sitting down with Philadelphia DJ Frequency to learn about the history of dance music and what it's like to guide the dance floor from up in that DJ booth, because that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, this episode, you cannot play the wall. Put on your dancing shoes. Let's get after it. Yeah, all right. So, Bay, you've asked this question so many times to our guests this season. I'm going to turn the tables on you. When you listen to music, what part of your body moves first? It's definitely shoulders. Shoulders? Shoulders for me, but I got to say, if I hear a good beat, you got to get the head nod going. Yeah. You know, but shoulders are, are to go to. I'm, I'm moving my shoulders right now. <laughs> he is popping <laughs> off, folks. I mean, I would say probably it's different for me every time, but I guess head, but also feet. I think my feet from doing years of tap dance, like that they kind of just like- Ah, they tap, they go. They go on. Yeah, they, they, they're my own little you instrument snap your there. I, I can snap, yeah. Well, I mean, do you like when you, when you, uh, no, not really. I mean, I guess if it's like a song that really feels like it requires a snap, but that's not my instinct. Not no. your instincts? Right. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. Fair. To give us some of the science behind this, we are now joined by Dr. Daniel Cameron. Daniel, welcome to So Curious. Can you please introduce yourself and what it is you do? Yeah, so I'm a postdoctoral fellow at McMaster University, so I, I do research. A field of study that I'm in is in cognitive neuroscience, so it's trying to understand the relationship between the brain and human behavior and thinking and feeling and how we respond to the world around us. And I'm specifically interested in music and musical rhythm in particular and what it is about music that gives us this amazing set of experiences and responses. It makes us feel things emotionally. We move along. We like it. It brings us together socially. There's so many interesting aspects to this. So that's the area that I study. Awesome. Are you a musician yourself? I am. I'm a drummer. Perfect then. Yeah, exactly. My interest in rhythm has been since I was a kid and I didn't always think of it that way. I just started, I was a drummer from when I was a kid. I, my undergraduate degree was in music performance. Actually, I studied percussion. You know, in retrospect, I wasn't studying science at all. I didn't think about science. I didn't take any science in my undergrad. I only got interested in that later. But, you know, when I look back, it was always interesting to me, like, what is it about certain rhythms that I like them so much, or I like to play them, or I can see the effect it has on people who are listening to me when I'm drumming. Certain kinds of rhythms make us want to move, or we just like them more. How does that work? And then, you know, later on, I studied music from other cultures. I was really lucky in university to study music from West Africa. and from Northern India, and music from Indonesia. And getting to play this music and like use different kinds of rhythms, whole different rhythmic systems and musical systems. So that process of learning to appreciate and, and enjoying those kinds of rhythms 
was like a mind expanding experience for me. How does this happen? How do we kind of change our perception in these ways? So that came back around once I got interested in neuroscience and psychology of this topic of cross-cultural learning and how we can learn new kinds of rhythms. Why does music make us move? Let's start there. That's a good question. And it's you can think of that question in different ways. You can think of it like, okay, what is it about the music in a given moment? Why is it that you might want to move or move more to some music than others? Or you could think of it like on the bigger evolutionary perspective, like why is it that we have music as a human species and we have music and dance always kind of going together in music-related movement? So why do we move to music? There are theories on the evolutionary side, on the long-term side of why we have music and musical movement, and that it brings us together. So there's research on this, that if you have people synchronize their movements together, and music is great for letting that happen and making that happen, then people are more likely to feel socially bonded afterward. So we've seen this in experiments with like children, where you kind of have them bouncing either in synchrony with a, an experimenter while they're listening to some rhythms, or in a kind of asynchrony, in a different pattern than the researchers doing. And if you test those toddlers afterward, in terms of how likely they are to help that person, that experimenter in some little task, like, oh, the experimenter dropped something. Will the toddler come over and like pick it up and give it to them? They're more likely to help that person if they've been bouncing along in synchrony as opposed to like a different pattern. And so that shows this pro-social effect of moving together in synchrony. And this has been shown in all different groups and different methodologies. So the pro-social aspect, the bringing together of people, making us feel like one group, feeling good about one another is useful. That makes us work together as a community better. So music has this function. And that's one thought about how music and music-related movement help us and why we have it in our species at all. Okay, so I have a question. So babies have rhythm, and it's wild because they haven't necessarily been taught it, right? Yep. Is it inherent or is it learned? I imagine there's like a, a good combo of both. But like, if it was never around humans, like adult humans, would it still have rhythm? I think you're, you're onto something there. It's some of both. So the evidence that this is something universal is partly what I was saying before. Like, we see this in every culture across the world, some aspect of like moving along to music. And we see this in pretty young children and even babies, you see that they'll tend to move to rhythmic music more than music that's more kind of flowy and doesn't have as strong rhythms. And there's research on this. They don't have the motor control to synchronize very well. Like you can't ask a baby like, okay, tap along with the beat. And they kind of, you know, do that really <laughs> well in the way that an adult can. And that's how we do a lot of experiments to test kind of perception of rhythm. But babies, if you just look at their spontaneous movement, they're a little more likely to move when they're listening to rhythms compared to something that's different than rhythms, like speech. If they're listening to someone speaking, they don't move as much as when they're listening to rhythmic music. So that shows that, like, from, at least from a very early age, that they've got this association. Rhythms and movement are linked. And so, yes, it seems like there's something about the nature of auditory sequences, so sounds in time, and how they're structured, the way music tends to make rhythms, that goes really well from our auditory system to our motor system and allows us to move along. And that relationship is there to some extent from very early age. The nurture side, you also see massive cross-cultural differences. You know, if we put on some music from a culture that you've never heard that music from before, some traditional music from some far off place, you probably wouldn't just like, oh, pick up on the beat super easily and, and know how to move to it. It would sound, okay, these rhythms are a little bit different, a little more complex sounding to me, maybe, that it would take some learning and exposure. So definitely, our culture and our experiences as individuals shape how we hear music and how we move to music. Absolutely. 
it's not solved, like which aspects are hardwired and which are learned. And so there's one aspect of this I've been studying recently about something called syncopation. And in music, that's the kind of like funkiness of a rhythm a little bit. It's the kind of use of notes coming off the beat a little more and more rests or pauses on the beat positions where you normally expect there to be strong notes. And syncopation occurs in all kinds of music, and it's a musical device that's used across the world. And there's an interesting relationship between syncopation, this certain type of rhythmic complexity, and our urge to move to the rhythms. So if you do experiments where you have people listen to a whole bunch of different rhythms, and you just have them listen to rhythms and then say, how much did that rhythm make you want to move? And people are pretty good at having an intuitive sense of like, oh, that's a five out of seven. I wanted to move somewhat to that. That's eh, just a two. That was really boring. It turns out that the syncopation is very related to how much they want to move in an inverted U-shaped manner. So very low levels of syncopation. So when a rhythm is very, very simple, people tend to not want to move to that as much. Rhythms that are very, very syncopated, really complex, it's harder to pick up on the beat. They don't want to move to those very much. But when there's this kind of sweet spot in the middle, when there's some kind of unpredictability, some kind of funkiness, some kind of complexity, that's the sweet spot and people really like to move to those rhythms. So that's a kind of interesting fact in itself. And it seems like there's limited evidence of this, but it looks like this is fairly robust across different cultures. There's work that tested people from Ghana and West Africa and people in North America, and they didn't differ. They had the same kind of relationship to syncopation and how much they wanted to move. We tested this in expert dancers and then people who have no dance training at all, and there was no difference there. They both had the same kind of relationship. It was the same uh, sweet spot of rhythmic complexity that made them most want to move along, even though the dancers have so much more experience moving to rhythms and different kinds of rhythms that they can move with. We also looked at this in children, and we're still trying to sort this out, but there's this question, is this something that we learn, that if you can imagine, oh, as you get to learn more music, you hear your parents' music and your communities, and you see how people are dancing, then you maybe learn the association between certain kinds of rhythms and the tendency to, to dance or to, to move along. Or it could be something about the way our brains are wired, that there's something about certain kinds of patterns and the way they engage our motor system, that it's a more fundamental thing. And it looks like it might be some of both. So we found in three to six-year-old children that they also liked this kind of sweet spot of some complexity, but not too much. And they wanted to dance more and did dance more to those rhythms compared to very simple rhythms. And now we're testing this in babies and we're getting kind of a mixed picture. In some ways they're moving more, but then they tend to choose the very simple rhythms. So this is a still an area we're trying to understand. Awesome. Awesome. Dr. Daniel, I want to ask you a bit of a personal question. Let's say you're listening to a song you absolutely want to move. What's the first body part that you are moving? Are you tapping your feet, snapping your fingers, nodding your head, shifting your shoulders, swaying your hips? And what does that say about the brain? That's a good question. I think for me personally, I tend to bob my head a lot. You know, I'm someone that really likes to move. Even if I'm at a classical music concert or something, I tend to like, oh, this is really nice and rhythmic. I'll bob my head along. I think that's a natural way that we move. And one thing about moving your head is that it engages your vestibular system, so our sense of balance. And that comes from, we've got these like inner ear structures that can detect like, oh, when you're leaning to one side or the other by detecting basically gravity, where your body position is. And we know that the vestibular system is like 
It's kind of a sense that we don't really think about very much because unless you're getting dizzy by spinning around or something, we don't really think of it. If you're leaning to one side, you just automatically adjust to your posture and your position. But we know that the vestibular system is sensitive to sound even. So if you have loud sounds, that engages your vestibular system and it's got close links to the motor system. So it might be involved. There's evidence that it's involved in rhythm perception as well. So that might be one reason that we like to move our heads is that we're getting such a sensory experience from not just the the kind of feeling of moving any body part, but also our vestibular system is getting this kind of activation. So that's one thing about musical movement, but people dance in all kinds of ways. You move your feet, you tap your foot. I'm a drummer, so I'm often drumming with my fingers and hands as I listen to music. It's just kind of a habit, bother all my colleagues, tapping on my desk and stuff. (laughs) So I think there's different ways based on our experience and what we have learned as kind of normal ways to move. But I think there is something special about moving our heads to music that engages our vestibular system. You asking this question, Bay, has been like very eye-opening. And I think like you said about drumming, like how you just kind of tap instinctively. I play piano and I, not that I'm like playing out chords with my hands, but when I'm being rhythmic, no matter where my Mm -hmm. fingers are going, I'm isolating them in different ways. I'm a hip hop artist myself. And so sometimes I find myself in studio sessions with producers and I'll play a bunch of beats. It's interesting to watch people respond to the beat. They'll kind of like, play air drums. It's like we're, in or, all, we're mm-hmm. all in our own little like mental concert in the moment. I feel like if you're a performer, like I feel like that's just how it, yeah. how it works. Yeah. It's interesting to see the body physically respond to the music and I guess try yeah. to get some information out of that in terms of what the brain might be doing there. And we know something about like, you know, the way we engage our bodies and different parts of our body with rhythm because rhythm's got this interesting property that it's hierarchical, right? There's like the beat that we tend to like, if you ask someone, snap your fingers or clap along, they pick kind of one rate and they'll easily clap along with that. But if you know like music notation, that might be the quarter note. There's also the eighth note that's twice as fast. Or the half note that is also locking in. All of those fit equally well in the rhythm. We tend to kind of pick one. But if you look at the kind of dynamics of complex movement, when people are just dancing, when they're just moving spontaneously, not just executing one kind of clapping along with the beat or something, they tend to move a little differently. So lower body tends to be these like slower movements and upper body and hands tend to be like the faster movements. So it might be Ah. like, oh, your half half note is where you're kind of feeling shifting from foot to foot and engaging your hips and, and legs. And then your hands are doing more like eighth notes or something like that. So this obviously it varies from person to person and from music situation to to situation, but there are some tendencies that way. And we're doing a study now to try to see how kids are learning those things as well. When they're just dancing spontaneously, we record video of them dancing and then we're doing some like automatic analysis of tracking their body movements and what kind of beat rates that their different body parts are synchronizing to. Fun research. Watch kids dance. My last question for you real quick, just in a sentence is like, what are you excited for about the future of your research? Like, what can we look forward to? Oh, I think there's more that we're doing that's exciting. This ongoing set of studies we have about syncopation. And another cool area of research we're working on now is related to bass frequencies. So we did a study where we added some extra bass, really, really low bass to an electronic dance music concert and found that people danced a little bit more when these extra low bass frequencies were on compared to off. So that was like a cool finding. And the cool thing about it, or one cool thing about it, is that they couldn't even hear when it was on. It wasn't like it changed the music in some perceptible way. It was a really, really low level effect, but still they danced more. So how does this work? So we're trying to do a study now to see, is this like the auditory system? Is it our tactile system? Because you can kind of feel music as well, especially bass when it's loud. 
Or is it our vestibular system, our sense of balance that I was talking about before that's sensitive to these as well? So we're doing a follow-up study to try to figure out which mechanism is might be underlying this relationship between bass frequencies and dancing and the, and the, the urge to move. I can't wait to find out. <laughs> if you need yeah. a couple of people to dance, Kirsten and I will definitely yeah, come to right. some EDM concerts. Yeah. Come on up. You can participate in our study. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, Dr. Daniel Cameron, thank you so much for being on the So Curious podcast. Thank you for being curious with Bay and I. Awesome. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Dr. Cameron, for sharing your research. It's insane how natural rhythm and dancing seems to be for humans. And to explore the innate need to dance further, we are now joined in studio by Dr. Jayatri Das. As always, thank you so much for coming in to speak with us. Hey, Kirsten. Hey, Bay. How are you guys? Welcome back. Welcome back. We are so happy to have you. What are we talking about today? So I want to talk about the science of how we dance. I'm into that. So (laughs) I think the place where I start from is there's this myth that we are constantly trying to bust, which is this idea that you only use 10% of your brain, Mm. right? Ah. You use 100% of your brain. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I honestly think that dance is one of the best examples of how we can really appreciate how complex our brains are and how you get it all to work together. Yeah. And as a side note, you just like destroyed the plot of so many sci-fi movies. Oh right. my gosh, don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we could do another episode on that. <laughs> Only 10% of our brains. All right, so in any yeah. case, dancing. Kirsten, can you dance? Yeah, a lot of my life has been taking a full curriculum in it in college, so yeah. Awesome. I mean, all of our time spent together, we've never been around each other dancing. We've been doing a lot of talking. Yeah. Well, the thing is, my dancing is jazz, tap, and ballet. It's theater, dancing, yes. you know, dancing. L- dancing that you have to do while singing. So it's a little, it's not as passionate. And Dr. Doss, are, are you uh I will tell you that organized dance is my downfall. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. you know, just free motion, I'm all about. Yeah. But, but choreo is not your, yeah. Like, the Cupid shuffle is my nightmare. <laughs> It's my nightmare, too, for other reasons. It's just a nightmare. But yeah, that's so funny. It's like having to know my right from my left Mm -hmm. in quick succession is not a strength Mm -hmm. that I have practiced. (laughs) Yeah, but this whole idea of synchronizing music and movement, right, pulls in so many different parts of your brain. Even just the fact that, you know, you start with listening and processing music in your auditory cortex and then your prefrontal cortex, which is about making meaning of things. Then you have to decide what you're going to do. So that pulls in your motor cortex in terms of, you know, planning your movement and executing your movement. You have to do that hand-eye coordination piece of it, the control that comes from your sensory cortex. You have to coordinate your movement to make it smooth. This is where I have incredible appreciation of like modern dancers mm-hmm. who just like oh their gosh. bodies are incredibly smooth and like how you have that fluidity of motion is amazing to me. Um, And that comes from the basal ganglia that's kind of these structures that are deep in your brain. And then you have to put it all together. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that comes from the cerebellum. So there's just so many things happening in your brain that go into what feels like organic fluid movement. And, you know, in a lot of Indian dance, like facial expressions Mm. are such an important part of dance as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. And like Irish dance and tap is the same way. It's just moving the bottom half of your body. Like Irish, especially, it's literally like straight arms and you're just moving your legs. The isolations that have to go into it. 
So one of my favorite things about dance is that it really helps us understand an expanded view of our senses. So, like, what do we normally think of as our senses?、Uh, taste, sight,、mm-hmm. smell, hearing, touch. Yeah, there touch. you go. So、Got、right.、Em. So we normally think of those five senses. But scientists think that we actually have many more senses, and there are a couple that I think are really well demonstrated through dance. So one is this idea of body awareness that we have a sense of where our body parts are. So if I ask you to close your eyes and touch your nose, you can do that. I will vouch that you both just touched、we、your just noses. We just did it. Yeah, we did it successfully. <laughs> no one got hurt. <laughs> right. So how do you know that? How are you able to do that? It's because you have this sense of where your body parts are, and that's a sense called proprioception. And then another one is our perception of balance, and this one actually starts to build on some of these other senses because, like, that is bringing in information from your eyes, information from your vestibular system and your inner ear, and proprioception of where your body parts are in space. And so the fact that, like, when you're dancing. All of these things are at work. I mean, our bodies are amazing.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, then I think the number one question I always get, like doing ballet, is like, "How are you doing?" Triple pirouettes and not getting、oh, dizzy. Yeah, yeah. And it's like because we're spotting.、Um, but yeah, you'd think you would get dizzy if you're looking everywhere as you spin. You're gonna totally get dizzy. So I'll leave you with one last little interesting tidbit, which is that in our brains there are some neurons that actually get activated. When you just watch an action, and so essentially watching that action creates the same brain activity as if you were performing that action. And some of the best studies around this phenomenon have been done with dance, because what scientists have observed is that these have a greater response when you watch an action that you're familiar with. So I love this experiment because they did experiments with dancers using ballet dancers, capoeira dancers, and non-dancers. And they looked at these. What's a non-dancer? <laughs> that, would be, that would be me. Right, yeah, yeah doctor. Let's, let's just say a non-expert dancer.、Uh, yeah. <laughs>、right. And so they looked at the activity in these brain regions, looking at what happens when a ballet dancer is watching ballet, or a ballet dancer is watching capoeira. All of those different combinations, and what they found is that the more familiar you are, so when the ballet dancers are watching ballet dances, when capoeira dancers are watching capoeira, they have stronger responses than when you cross it, like when you tell the ballet dancer to watch capoeira or, or capoeira dancer to watch ballet, and then the non-dancers, non-expert dancers, have a lower threshold for both, right?、Mm. Because they just don't recognize these、uh, patterns of movement. That activate their brain to respond in the same way, and so these types of neurons are called the concept of mirror neurons. That you're essentially mirroring what you see in your brain, and it's really interesting to look at these as how your brain mechanisms are actually influenced by cultural learning. This is not something that's necessarily innate. There was a time when people thought there might be, and they're like, "Ah,、oh, mirror neurons are going to explain everything," and they、uh-huh. they don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But in this case, the the patterns do seem to be pretty strong when it comes to this physical motion and thinking about how dance has really helped us understand that. Jaiatri Das, thank you so much for coming through again with another incredible body of knowledge segment. Thank you. Ah,、uh, yes. Thank Always you. Always fun. Thanks, guys.
Thank you so much again to Jayatri for joining us throughout this season and all seasons. We love having her on the podcast and in the studio. Absolutely. And now we are joined by DJ Frequency for a crash course in dance music. Thank you so much for joining the show. Cameron, thanks for being here. Yeah, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Absolutely. Can you uh, introduce yourself? Tell us about yourself, what you do. Sure. Um, as you stated, my name is Cameron. I DJ under the name Frequency. I do a number of things. I'm involved in nightlife by way of venue management. I have a creative consulting and management firm. I have a residency at the Dolphin called Base Down Low with my two best friends, Chris, who is also named Nail Salon, and Tia Low Iron. Love it. Awesome. So we would love to know, so like what kind of genres and styles do you subscribe to? Like someone's going to see a frequency set. What kind of genre style are they expecting to see? In the beginning, I like to start off with like a lot of Midwest centric stuff on the slower end. Primarily like ghetto house, hard house, um, some deep house, and then into some of the slower like Detroit Midwest techno, which is very different from like what they do over in Berlin. And with our party like based on we're very intentional about that because it's a very specific sound. But uh, you know, I kind of move into some UK garage. I do a lot of footwork. I do a lot of juke, and I do a lot of club music. Um, I've been in Philly for three and a half years now. And so I've been just completely immersed in like Baltimore club, Jersey club, Philly club, just mm. very heavily. No, that's dope. Frequency, you just threw out a lot. Definitely open that up. Talk about yeah. those those cultural touch points. You talked about the Midwest. You talked about mm -hmm. UK. Seriously. You talked about Philadelphia. You know, what's the differences between those genres of, of dance and house? Are we talking about tempo, speed? Jump right into it. It's all of that tempo, speed, feel, the message that they're trying to convey to you. I think specifically like going back to techno and like dance music, all of that kind of started out in Chicago and Detroit. Chicago creating house, they were communicating back and forth with New York by way of various DJs starting at the warehouse, which is how house music supposedly got its name. They were playing disco, they were playing post-disco records like Zapp and Roger and then a lot of Donna Summer and eventually it got to that 4-4 kick that we all kind of knowing the guys over in Detroit, the auto industry is on a decline. It's a site of urban decay. It's a little more rigid. The 808s, the 909s, the 303s, uh, drum machines that they're using and synthesizers. And you're talking about the equipment used the, to the kind equipment. of like make these program sounds, right? Exactly. Um, it's very straight ahead. It's becoming more rigid and it's becoming this sound that is uh, the soundtrack to urban decay, So, which is why I talk about Detroit techno so heavily. It's very black. It's very rigid, but it's the music of the times that's pulled from the, the past, but speak to the future and present all at the same time. And can you speak to like some of the sounds that emerged in these like literal spaces? You talk, got the nightclub and you got a, a warehouse, <laughs> like oh. an industrial space. Oh, absolutely. Like a nightclub, it's kind of appeal to a wider audience. People like to hear things that are very familiar to them. But when you're in a warehouse, you generally have more of an audience that's open to more experimental sounds. I guess like the attitude kind of matches the space. It's a big warehouse. It's industrial. It's no holds barred, it's free, and the sounds are even bigger because you have all that reverberation, all this space, all this concrete, all this brick, steel, just vibrating that noise back and you feel it in your chest. That's what I like. <laughs> yeah, you got excited when you talked about yeah, it just now. <laughs> I was going to say, I love the passion. And so Bay just kind of touched on this a little, but the dance club, nightlife, what role has that played in 
culture, like our American culture. Escapism, it's just another form of it. Back in the, what, 20s and 30s, it was film and radio and eventually, like, these dances and sock hops of the 50s. and Speakeasies. Speakeasies. Mm -hmm. It's pure escapism, but especially for Black communities. You're, you're constantly facing some oppressive force or... You just might not be having a good time at work or in school or in your family life, but you can reconnect with these people that you party with or that you may meet there and you get to just release for six hours. I mean, if you're over in Europe, it's 12 hours, sometimes mm. 34. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, that sense of community, right? Mm -hmm. So, so powerful. Although in this question, I, I feel like the 808 drum, like when you feel it really it has the deep low end and you feel it in your chest. For me personally, I really like that. Do you like that? Is that I absolutely? Wanna, I want to project that. <laughs> Why is that so special? Why is that big thump of an eight hundred eight like so oh, special? Oh, you feel it. Yeah. People they talk about the way it feels in your brain, like certain sounds. It, it kind of scratches like an itch in your brain somewhere. If you look at old videos from, say, like the new dance show that they had in Detroit, they would dance in front of the speakers and move their body in such a way because they were feeling it. They want to feel that bass. That's why people dance and identify with that so much. It's like a pat on the back. Yeah, mm -hmm. that was, you just perfectly segued into my <laughs> question, which was like, I'm a comic, right? Mm -hmm. And so my job when I get up there is I do something and they must laugh <laughs> or I did not do my job, right? That's how I know if what I'm doing is quote-unquote correct or not, right? So I'm curious about the relationship between the DJ and the crowd dancing. Like, how do you guide that energy? Is that how you, is that something you use as a gauge for yourself of like if you're doing well or not or? I forgot who coined the term, but it's called dance floor psychology. I'm communicating my past, present, and future to them and having a conversation through the frequencies. Mm -hmm. So that's speaking to them and whatever energy that I'm giving out, I'm hoping to guide them into some direction, whether it's something really energetic or something very sensual. From like my sense as peaks and valleys, I might have you up here for about 10 minutes, but then I might want to take you down here for about five before I bring you back up even higher. And let me ask a personal question. When you hear music, what's the first thing to move? Is it the head, the hips? Oh, it's like a combination between like my neck and my head. Mm. Okay. Just, that's my little bop right there. <laughs> Love that. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Do you find that the energy of the crowd guides you or do you typically feel the most like the conductor when you're up there? Like a conductor, but it is a back and forth because that's just like a performer is up on a stage, whether you're a rapper or you're in a rock band or, or whatever, you feed off that energy. And that energy that I receive in some ways can dictate where I go. If I hear that they're really loving this sound at that moment, I take it there. I, I kind of accentuate or keep playing songs like that until I'm like, all right, cool. Let me find something else. Let's go in another direction because I have your trust now. Is there a pattern that you found doesn't work in a social or party setting? Or are you determined mm. to just be like, no, this song's going to play? That was my question. Like, do DJs have the equivalent of like comics like bombing on stage? Like nobody laughs and you're like, oh, my God, I want to get out of here so bad. <laughs> Absolutely. You, but we yeah. have we have a quicker turnaround period than, than comics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like I, I was playing my party with two Fridays ago. And the person that plays before me in rotation was playing like some really heady Detroit techno stuff. Like the people in the crowd that knew, they knew and they really loved it. But you have a walk-up crowd and people that aren't so familiar with that and they want to 
hear some other stuff. So in my head, I was like, all right, cool. Let me go ahead and start playing some stuff that's kind of true to the sound, but not more poppy. But they have like familiar tracks in them, like remixes, edits, something to bring up that energy. And people really respond to that. Or I just, you know, turn on some Ice Spice because that's what's hot right now. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you have your fail safes, right? Where you're like, oh, absolutely. Every DJ has a go to. Yeah. Yeah. I always found that there's like a social science to parties. Like, you see the people who play the wall, you see the, the party starters, the people who are early on the floor while it's mm. empty. No one's there, but just the them and the dj's at the center of it all it's really really uh fun to watch Mm -hmm. i I encourage everybody to go to a dance party yeah seriously yeah and going to a wedding doesn't count (laughs) does not count (laughs) it does not count frequency tell us how do you prepare for a dj set i find myself preparing a lot less than i did before all these years have prepared me to be able to just get up in front of a crowd with my usb plug on in and I can just go from there. I know my music and my crates well enough, but previewing the music, seeing what I may or may not like, what's the energy I'm going for, and do I want to tailor my crates? All my crates are organized by genre and inside the genres, they're tailored by subgenres and even further, like they're tailored by beats per minute. That's the, the tempo of the track. But yeah, I I go for a vibe that day and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You just have to be able to flex. And that's where all the practice comes into play. Yeah, the flexibility, right? The crowd work of like, hey, if this is just not the vibe or if like your opener did not set the vibe that you had anticipated and you're like. And that's a science in itself right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like the people aspect. I mean, that's so much of being an artist, right? Is is exhausting. (laughs) I wanted to ask, like, you know, it's come up a couple of times in some of uh, Kirsten and I's conversation, the concept of flow. How does flow, I guess, relate to a DJ set? You know, can you talk about that a little bit? Like Mm -hmm. what's flow for a DJ? That's kind of what I was alluding to earlier is the peaks and the valleys. It's um, creating a warm, welcoming environment. So when people are first walking in, if you're an opening DJ or if it's you all night, you need to put yourself in a position of the patron or party goer. It's early. It's nine. You have your, what is everyone drinking right now? Espresso martinis. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they sure or, are. <laughs> or, or, your, or your whatever it is, your, your vodka soda. You want to chill out. You want to ease into it. Me personally, I'm on the faster side of a lot of DJs. Um, so I'm starting off at 125, maybe 130 BPMs I'm playing house music. After that, I get a little more intricate. The drums become more complex. This is me creating an environment where it's going to start to make you move a little more. I'm going to help you ease into that groove. But as time progresses, I'm going to force you to move. Okay. God, the psychology behind it. It's like you're you're like a puppeteer and we're the exactly. puppets, but we don't know it. But we want that. Like we mm-hmm. come there for you to do that, yes. right? All right. I'm going to throw you a curveball yeah. question. Sure. Oh, yeah. Get him. It's 2 a.m. <laughs> Close are, your eyes. Set People the scene. are tired. They've been dancing all night. What song are you playing to get their energy back up for like another 30 minutes? Oh, see, if this is New York... And it's 2 a.m. because bars and clubs here shut down at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But New York, if I'm playing like Bossa Nova or Nowadays or something like that, mm-hmm. I'm probably playing like some jungle edits very faster. It's 160 BPMs. It's in your face. The drums are intricate, but um, 
they're still palatable enough to make you really feel something and dance the way that I want you to dance. You can't ignore it. No, oh, yeah. no, no. Yeah, that's the best kind, right? Yeah, yeah, I love that. When you're like, like I have no energy, and then a song comes on, and you're like, but I have to. I physically have to dance. Just to grabs this. you by the shoulders. Yeah, right. <laughs> So before we go, we always like to ask our guests for some food for thought for our listeners. So what advice would you have, Frequency, for anyone interested in getting into DJing? Do you have any resources you recommend? If you want to get into DJing, know that this isn't going to pay a lot (laughs) of money, Um, at least not for a very long time. Get into it because you love the music. You have a message to convey. And even if that message isn't deep or anything, it's just for the love of making people move and giving people a good time that they might remember for I don't know how many years. But when they see you back on the street, they see you and they say, oh, man, like you provided the soundtrack to like one of the best nights of my life. That's what we do it for. But honestly, learn the fundamentals. There are a lot of people using the technology or they're using the technology as a crutch. When that technology fails, make sure you're able to rely on your fundamentals. That's it. There you go. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That was Damn. really sound advice, honestly. So we want to thank you so much for stopping by. Do you want to plug um, your social media, anything, any upcoming shows? Sure. I will be playing every fourth Friday at The Dolphin for Bass Down Low. It's the only party of its kind in Philadelphia and, honestly, the East Coast. Also catch me every fourth Monday at Great Circles playing two-hour sets in the radio front. I am Frequency on everything, P-H-R-E-A-K-W-E-N-C-Y. Amazing. Cannot miss up. Cannot uh, miss up. Thank you so much for being here. Wow. All right. Thank you so much to Frequency. I mean, we've all seen DJs a million times, but they feel like such like omnipotent beings to me. They're just in their booth and I just am like, what's going through their head? You know, are they judging my dancing? Like, What's going on? <laughs> but it's so cool to hear that like he's like, no, he wants you out there dancing. So that was incredible. Thank you to all of our guests who have agreed to be on this season and share your research, your expertise, your music. This was really awesome. Bay, what would you say is your biggest takeaway oh man what's gonna stick with you kirsten these conversations are always a little bit hard i know we have our our takeaways and the things that we're gonna go home with because there's so much and i'm still processing all of it right there's so many highlights of all of them but if you have to pick one something that like i just really did not know and that blew me away honestly i think maybe the synesthesia conversation oh yeah was really i knew about what synesthesia was smelling numbers oh my god right and I never knew that hearing colors went as far for some people as like yeah. certain notes always attached to it. That was like, yeah, ooh, that was cool. And yeah. I love seeing and we both got to uh, experience some of the wearable technology around sound and oh, how that can yeah. have people who might experience the world a little bit differently still be able to jump in and join in on the play of audio. Do you experience or appreciate music a little bit differently now? Oh my God, yes. Like, I just feel like even since we've been recording, I've been listening to a lot more music than usual, hearing all the stuff that goes into it. So this has been amazing. And we also want to take a moment to thank all of you out there right now listening. We want to say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. 
we can have a podcast all we want, but it would just be Bay and I just talking into the ether if it weren't for you guys. Thank you all so much. Seriously, please remember, if you haven't already, to subscribe. You can pull up these episodes again when you're thinking about it. Recommend it to your friends. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a five-star review. It goes a really long way so we can get all this awesome, awesome info out to other people because people need to hear it. Right, Bay? Absolutely. Mm. Six stars if you can. If you can find a way, that Why would not? be really cool. Yeah. And thank you all so much for being here, for joining us on the So Curious podcast, and for the last time this season, go birds. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Matafusco. Dr. Jayatri Das is the Franklin Institute's chief bioscientist. And Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mixing engineer is Justin Berger, and our audio editor is Lauren DeLuca. Our graphic designer is Emma Seeger. And I'm the Bull Bay. And I'm Kirsten Michelle Sells. Thanks. Thank you. See ya.